economic crime is on the rise. Digitisation and, of course, lately the pandemic have been key drivers. So where are we now and what are the big issues to be aware of? What's being done to counter fraud? To explore all this, I'm joined by two guests with deep expertise on economic fraud and how it's being tackled. Aaron Chowan is founder of Tenet Law. He's a trustee of the Fraud Advisory Panel. And Chris Osborne is forensic services partner at the business advisory firm FRP. Welcome both. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Philippa. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Aaron, shall we start with a bit of scene setting? Economic crime, it's been on an upward trend since 2019. What is the current picture? Yeah, the picture, if you read the media or you look at it, it looks pretty bleak. I think you have to look at it from both a consumer perspective as well as a business perspective. From the consumer's perspective, it is pretty painful. I mean, I think all crime in the UK, 40% of that crime is made up of fraud or cybercrime. The drive to online be it in terms of way we conduct our lives from all types of shopping to investments has led to an offer greater opportunity for fraudsters and bad actors and the proximity of those bad actors is further away now so harder to, to prosecute and for businesses and I'm sure Chris will add more on this side they're facing a mix of pressures be it from interference with uh, faster payments and transactions so the cyber criminals interrupting business payments Employees under pressure uh, due to the cost of living crisis, so there's greater risk that they may act in a, uh, a dishonest manner. And of course, in supply chains, there's there's a world of problems there. But yeah, we're, we're heading into a bit of a perfect storm with fraud. And as I'm sure Chris could probably have far more uh, weight with in relation to some of the business issues. Yeah, Chris. I would entirely agree with what Aaron's just uh, said it's an important um, point in time that we face in terms of we're just coming out of the global pandemic, which has obviously put a lot of pressure on individuals and businesses. And that has really been you know, playing a quite a significant part in driving up fraud alongside some of the technological issues that I think we may be talking about later. But during the actual pandemic, obviously, one of the things that um, was highly unusual was uh, we had effectively a, a workforce, uh, the majority of the workforce. Uh, working from home, there were certain opportunities that uh, presented themselves to people. I think part of it was because certain systems and controls hadn't allowed for the mass amount of people working from home. Those took a certain amount of time to to catch up, and so there was a, there was a certain amount of opportunity, and I suppose also motivation on some people's part to take advantage of that. So I think the general trend has been uh, an increase in fraud, but the pandemic has really sort of helped drive that kind of that level up, unfortunately. The real issue here, Chris, is that fraud is such an agile industry, if I can describe it as an industry. They were very quick, weren't they, to exploit the pandemic opportunities? Absolutely. I think this is the thing with fraudsters. They are, you know, generally quite clever. They spot opportunities and gaps very quickly. And and often the government enforcement, etc., is some way behind that. And in that in that gap, um, before loopholes are closed, etc. And with the technological advances, which means things can happen so quickly, it does mean that unfortunately fraudsters can take advantage of these situations. So I mean, just to use one example, which has been well publicised, is around uh, furlough fraud and also the various loans that the government offered during the pandemic to support individuals and, and businesses. In the rush to support uh, those people, the, obviously, the systems and controls in order to actually uh, provide that, well, probably in hindsight, we've probably not really 
adequate, which meant that um, that criminals could take advantage of extracting uh, taxpayers' money. And now we're faced with a situation where there's a very significant amount of money that appears to have been misappropriated. Obviously, a real issue in terms of how that money might potentially be uh, recouped by the taxpayer. And that's a real issue, I think, in terms of what, you know, as taxpayers you know, and the government, how do we want to kind of go about that? Is it something that the government will do or is it something that the private sector can actually assist with? But that's a, a classic example of fraudsters basically taking advantage of a particular situation. Obviously, the government trying to, to support individuals and businesses in, a, in what we're seeing as, sort of a, as a sort of an emergency situation. Yeah, I'd like to explore what the government response is. Before we get to that, I mean, Aaron, are there particular historical or legal issues that particularly enable economic crime here in the UK? Do we have a particular problem? Yeah, I think the foundation of the historic problem is that people, be it within business or individuals, see fraud as something that wouldn't happen to them. It's something you'd read about, something you'd hear about the news in a business context. Oh, our people wouldn't do that to us or our business partners, suppliers wouldn't act in that way towards us. So it was always a reactive state. People wouldn't believe it would happen to them. And equally on, on the consumer side, it was people would not believe that they'd fall for a scam or a, uh, a fraudulent act. In terms of the political backdrop, there are multiple government agencies and bodies and different uh, aspects of the police force dealing with economic crime. And it hasn't been as coherent as perhaps we would have liked it to be with the benefit of hindsight. So historically, we haven't been set up for uh, addressing fraud as quickly. You talked about the agility of fraud. And because we haven't thought about fraud historically as something which affects everybody and could affect every business, we're not very agile in dealing with it and responding. You, you almost get this, certainly for businesses, you get this almost this headless chicken kind of moment where they suspect fraud may have happened, but they don't know what to do, who to call, how to investigate, where to go. And in those critical early hours after fraud is discovered, so much loss can occur. And, you know, it's not just businesses, it's individuals as well. We, we're just not educated about fraud well enough. Yeah, as you say, so there's an issue around education, there's an issue around joined up response. But Chris, what are the most common types of fraud that chartered accountants might come across? Well, I can really only talk from my own experience. I think probably in the last four or five years in terms of uh, cases that myself and my team have worked on have predominantly been uh, cases involving employees of a business or a charity. And it's typically in organisations which do not have a particularly strong culture, sort of anti-fraud culture, and they don't have a particularly um, strong systems and controls. As Aaron commented just then, typically companies think that it's not going to happen to them. And unfortunately, it, it often does. So they often find themselves in a situation whereby there's been some kind of allegation or suspicion of fraud and want an investigation to take place to A, determine how, how the fraud has been perpetrated, if there has in fact been a fraud, and what the impact is. And also, often these businesses are um, regulated or charities or, or businesses are regulated in one way or another. So obviously, they do have an obligation to uh, report that to regulators. And what we find is that typically an employee or person who's involved with the organisation that has perhaps been in place for quite a long time is a trusted individual and perhaps the fraud has been going on for quite a long time. So they are sort of trusted um, individuals. And then there is the shock, obviously, of, of being you know, a victim of economic crime uh, and wanting to, A, to make sure that the person repays the money if it's that's possible to recover the money. 
and B, to ensure that that then doesn't happen again. So often on the back of a fraud, there is a determination by the organisation to then put things in place to mitigate that from uh, from happening again. So employee fraud is definitely something that we've seen the last few years. I think going forwards, we're going to see much more of that. And I think also involving uh, directors and potential sort of collusion with other companies. My suspicion, um, I don't know if Aaron agrees with this, is that the economic backdrop that we're facing, and I think it's unfortunately going to get worse with interest rates, um, supply chain issues, all, all of these um, issues just going to put more and more pressure on, on businesses. And, and I think that's when we often see some of this nefarious activity coming out of the, out, out of the woodwork. I was just going to come back on, on something Chris said. I, I completely agree. The, the economic backdrop is going to lead to greater pressure on be it directors or, or businesses or those supplying businesses to, to create more opportunity to make money. One of the typical areas we've seen, much like Chris with employee fraud, but in terms of procurement and supply chain is business decision makers, where they're being caught by fraud is not in their core business line, but it's in the peripheral lines of running a business. So for example, I've seen a company get caught out on a large scale fraud relating to getting franking machines and photocopiers. They're a manufacturer of jewellery, but they got caught by supply chain issues on areas which are outside of their core of the business, which they don't understand, but there was a deal to be had in their mind. And that's what I think we're, we're going to see is people are looking to save money because of that squeeze Chris is talking about. And it's going to be in areas which aren't their core business. And that's where they'll drop their guard and they'll, they'll look for the deal, but that's where the weaknesses will be exposed and the fraudsters know um, they can expose those loopholes. So that's a red flag, isn't it? What other red flags should accountants, businesses be watching for? Well, there's there's a variety, I, I think. There's, from an employee fraud perspective, there, there are classic red flags about, Chris has talked about culture, but there's also about control of individuals bypassing their segregation of duties. So, for example, you will say on paper, someone dealing with purchasing and someone dealing with payment uh, there are separate control mechanisms, but the two individuals sit side by side in the office and they're pretty friendly with each other. So there's an opportunity created. Often, I think, where organisations don't have the culture where they'll report and talk about fraud openly, you will lead to um, a greater red flag that people don't, if they don't communicate about it, it means they're not going to uh, reveal it. But the biggest red flag is the one we're all facing with the, the economy. And it's back to what Chris said, we're, we're facing a, a period of time where it's going to get worse. And if you haven't got that cultural issue right, people are going to start doing the right thing for them rather than the right thing. Much like we'd want everyone's moral compass to point due north, I'm not sure it always does. As you say, culture is key. Presumably they, there will always be nervousness, won't there, in organisations about reporting suspicions, you know, that preference not to rock the boat. Presumably that's a big issue too. So, yeah, in, ter in terms of reporting to regulatory bodies, I can understand the reticence um, around that. But I think uh, companies really have an obligation to report. And the reticence, I guess, is around you know reputational risks. It's around the time and the cost of potential investigation. So and regulators are you know very much encouraging uh, companies and directors, etc., to come forward to uh, to report suspicions and and you know, potential issues. But I can understand from a kind of corporate's perspective, and obviously it's you know it's dependent on their motivations and and the advice that they're getting from their their legal advisors, etc. But I can understand why companies may be uh, reluctant, shall we say, to uh, kind of put their 
issues out into the uh, into the public domain and everything that kind of goes um, that goes with that. It's an internal issue too, isn't it? I mean, before you even get to the point of companies reporting to regulatory authorities internally, people's reluctance to voice suspicion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, as Aaron talked about, you know, it's about a culture, and the culture is set very much by the board, by people at the you know the, the top executives. And to my mind, it should be a, an open culture, a forum whereby people can express openly or potentially anonymously through whistleblowing hotlines, that type of thing, suspicions that they they have about um, potential inappropriate relationships with suppliers, for example, or why potentially the uh, you know the finance department is treating certain issues the way they are, you know, from an accounting treatment perspective. All of these issues should be something that one would hope would be openly discussed and raised to the most, you know, to the appropriate level. And that really does come from the executive level and the kind of way that they approach business. So it is really important that um, there is an open and transparent culture. It's not a blame game within, you know, within a corporate or a charity, etc. It's something that uh, that can be discussed in an open, non-blame culture. So, Aaron, it's a policy and procedure issue. I think it's a policy and procedure issue, but I think it's, uh, we touched on it already, an education issue. So one of the things uh, I encourage amongst um, businesses, so for example, and and not-for-profits, so this is certainly something, for example, with charities or housing associations, you want everyone in that organisation to understand, I can only put it in this way, really what fraud looks like, smells like, you know, it, it appears like, because people see fraud as something as very black and white, but it has you know, real shades of grey. One person's view on dishonesty is not the same as someone else's. So you need to have that policy and procedure in place, but it's only going to work if people understand what they're looking for. So there needs to be an open engagement about fraud. I often encourage businesses to have fraud on the agenda at every level in the business, once every six months in a team meeting, once every year. And I'd actually ask anyone in the organisation, in your job role, how would you uh, defraud your own company? What are the weaknesses? And they, they are the systems and controls uh, that can be uh, fed up to directors of compliance, heads of governance, assurance, internal audit, those people who can then set the controls because they learn from the people on the shop floor. So, so it's it's an ongoing engagement and policy and procedure has to have ongoing engagement as a central pillar to work. Thinking about counter-fraud at a national level, the government's released a feedback statement outlining its plans for audit and corporate governance reform. What's your feeling about that? How do these measures address corporate fraud? Do you think they're going to be effective? Chris? I think the intentions are, are right. I think that the issues, again, I think are around you know, the, the, the time lag involved in terms of actually you know, producing a white paper, etc. And then the actual laws and regulations coming into place. So I, I sort of sense uh, there's a little bit of, sort of frustration in some ways in terms of the, the time that inevitably takes for these things to be implemented. And also, I think one has to bear in mind that the government are striking a balance between a regime whereby the UK attracts uh, businesses and high net worth individuals that want to set up uh, businesses. Obviously, then, in terms of the audit market, to balance in terms of what is, is required in terms of the, the rigour of audits and trying to do that in a, in a proportionate manner. So it appears that they have you know, listened to um, lots of different interested parties and come up with um, some of these proposals, it is somewhat of a, of a balancing act. No one party is going to be, no one interested, interested party is going to be entirely uh, happy with, the, with, with some of the suggestions. But I think um, uh, my sense uh, overall is that uh, they're trying to, uh, trying to achieve the right balance. 
Aaron, tell us what's what's your feeling about the um, the government response. Well, I endorse everything Chris is saying. I, I think it's a much needed response. Uh, there'll be critics that say it won't, it doesn't go far enough. There wants to be a kind of higher hurdle in terms of ho- holding people to account in terms of some of the um, issues we've seen historically around corporate failure and and the role maybe auditors had in that. People often cite Carillion as an example, but. Yeah, for, for those that suffer as a result, the creditors ultimately, and that includes the taxpayers uh, with HMRC, it's a step in the right direction. And, and and there are a number of changes and reforms across different aspects of the fraud landscape, be it for the banking industry or, or otherwise. It's welcomed because it shows that there is an acceptance of the problem and a, an acceptance of a need for change. Uh, and that can only bring momentum. So broadly, I'm happy it's going in the right direction. Uh, and you'd hope it would just continue to go in that in that fashion. Presumably implementation is going to be the big issue there, is it? And time frame, how soon are we going to see this this response actually in practice? I think uh, the timeline is um, is an issue. I think in terms of the uh, auditing of companies, then as we've already seen, um, the audit industry is changing. There's um, a divestment of, uh, a potential divestment of, and a split of audit practices with consulting practices, which has obviously been an area that uh, the audit firms have, the big four firms especially, have been uh, criticised. So that is already, or there's a lot of conversation at least in terms of potential actions around that which firms are sort of taking into their own hands. But I think also, I mean, in terms of the kind of time lags involved in terms of implementation, it really is a political issue as much as anything else in terms of getting some of these um, these things onto the statute, but which appears to be some way off. So I suspect that there will be some changes which actually happen potentially before some of these things are, are put into law. And of course, this is an international problem, isn't it? I mean, is there collaboration on the, on the response internationally to countering fraud? In terms of counter-fraud, I mean, there are a number of organisations that are, seek to sort of collaborate between the various jurisdictions. I think certainly in terms of... The UK and the US, there's quite a lot of collaboration. But what I would say is that um, there certainly could be a lot more. I think that, uh, you know, sharing of of information and uh, best practice, there there certainly could be um, a lot more of that on the counter-fraud side. I would say, in my experience, that the collaboration is more focused towards the investigation of of potential frauds once they've actually taken place. Again, there could be certainly a lot more done on that side, I think in terms of uh, in terms of counter fraud, there's I think less focus on that and probably more focus on kind of the post event side of things. I mean, clearly there is a lot of work to be done on this. There is a lot of work being done, but is it enough to halt the rise of economic crime? What do you feel about this? Do you, do you feel the trajectory will regardless be will still be upwards because it has been, hasn't it, for some considerable time? The fraudsters are actually beating the system. Yeah. I think the trajectory will continue to rise. We see one alarming statistic at the moment that 2% of budget for policing goes to counter-fraud, whereas, as I've mentioned, 40% of all crime is fraud and cybercrime. So the fraudsters see a great opportunity that the chances of being caught um, and prosecuted are, are relatively slim, be it for the reasons of proximity, that they're not located in this country or just the police haven't got the resources. So it, it's starting to turn this onus uh, back on businesses, uh, back on individuals to understand and educate themselves around fraud. And, you know, the, the most important thing for any business listening to this podcast, it's going to be about their 
controls. It's education and controls because this problem isn't going away. It is only going to get worse in my view, which is a, it's a real shame. In, in the UK, we seem to be a hotbed for fraudsters to try their game. We have the faster payment system, which really is a, a, you know, a real enabler. We have obviously all the online companies that also enable fraudsters to get to their, their victims or impersonate organisations. And so there needs to be this balance of getting controls improved, but also people understanding why they're improving their controls. And I come back to understanding what fraud looks like and getting on top of the issue that way as well. We'll leave it there for today, but this is doubtless a topic we'll come back to. Aaron Chowan and Chris Osborne, thanks very much for helping us focus on fraud. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you very much. And if this is a subject you'd like to know more about, check out the show notes on your app or visit the podcast page on the ICAW site. That's icaew.com forward slash insights forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and share it and subscribe to ICAW Insights wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back later in the month. Join us then. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 